Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Mike Steinwinder. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Cornerstone. Um, I'm excited. We're starting chapter 18 of John, and we've been on, in John for some time now. And, uh, you know, it's just exciting to, to, to move on to a new chapter and a new part of this story. And, um, you know, last week, Jared finished chapter 17 talking about God's plan for this world was to show His glory through us, and His desire is to show His glory to us. And you would say, why? Well, it's so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you may have life in His name. And it's so, I mean, even the songs that we, spung, we, we sung this afternoon or this morning is that just to, just to glorify and exalt Him. And that, that's from John's perspective. John is looking at this story from a totally different perspective than the other um, gospel writers. And that there's a lot more detail in those other stories. But John is looking to exalt and to glorify Christ in that. And we're going to see that through chapter 18. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of, I have 27 verses to get through, so it's a lot of material. And so I'm going to kind of talk a narrative. I'm going to talk about a story of what's going on through this. And so as we start it, remember, this is the final events of Jesus' life. It's the last day. It's the last few hours. And he has gone. He's going to the garden to, be, to do the will of the Father and be obedient to the Father. And through this, we're going to see how Christ is in control, how Christ has been in control, is in control, and will always be in control because that is his plan. Christ, the reason that Christ was born was to actually die. You know, he'd been telling his disciples this for some time, and, it was, and he knew what he was doing. He knew that when he went to the garden that he was going to give up his life for us, that he was going to be obedient to the Father and do what the Father expected him to do. Jesus at this time, was, he was never trapped. He was never tricked. He was never surprised. And most certainly, he was never a victim in this. He went to the cross on his own design of his own will. Why? Because he was born for that purpose. So the next events that we see in this, in, in this chapter were, were important because none of the wonderful things that he talked about and he promised during his ministry would have come true without him going and doing what he had to do. There'd be no promise of eternal life. There'd be no promise of sending the, the Holy Spirit as our comforter. Jesus promised that he would return for his beloved and he would prepare a place for us. But he also was going to give us treasures of grace and salvation. And so these events were so dependent upon the manner of Christ's death and resurrection. But most importantly, before we get into to, to, to verse 1, was that this was the will of the Father. So before we get going, I have to apologize. I've been kind of ill all week, and so my voice is kind of, hopefully it lasts the, the, the whole hour here. Um, but you'll be seeing me sip on water, so let me apologize for that. <coughs> so let's go ahead and let's get started. And if you have your Bibles, open to chapter 18, verse 1 of John. When Jesus has, had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, knowing all, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said this to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So after supper, Jesus has led his disciples past the great temple. They most likely exited Jerusalem through the, the eastern gate, and they would have traveled a little bit northeast um, to, along the outside perimeter of that wall, and then they would have crossed the Kidron Valley. So I want to show you a, a map, kind of what, what I just described. So you can see the temple, you can see the great wall, you can see the gate up and uh, above the temple. So you can see that they would have walked up along this, this, uh, this ravine and then back down through the valley over to the Mount of Olivet, and then finally winding up in the, the Garden of Gethsemane. But what I want to describe to you is that, and I'm going to show you a couple slides in, in just a minute, that you know, this, this, was a, this is a long walk. This is, we tried to, we sat around during the sermon prep meeting trying to figure out, you know, what we could compare something to. So we thought the best way to compare it would be is if you're sitting on Yosemite and you walked up to um, Rocky Peak and back down, that would be roughly about the walk that we would have seen them take between Jerusalem and between the Garden of Gethsemane each time. So the Kidron Valley is a valley or a ravine or it's a torrent bed um, which starts north of Jerusalem um, it passes between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives on its way to the Dead Sea. And the name means, as Todd explained a few weeks ago, it means this like dusky, this gloomy. It's, it tells um, about these dark waters that are often stained by the blood um, from the temple sacrifices. So Todd went through this description of, of this blood draining out of, this, out of the Temple Mount and then making its way into slowly oozing and draining down the side of this mountain or this cliff down into the ravine and then eventually would find its way into the little brook that was there. So Josephus, a first century Jewish um, historian, tells us that during the Passover, that particular Passover, the Romans would want to count or know how many uh, people were in Jerusalem. So they did this by counting the sheep that were offered as sacrifices. And Josephus writes in this particular um, account that over 256,000 sheep were sacrificed. That's a lot of blood oozing and dripping down the side of this mountain. And so you can imagine that, that this would have just been collecting, like Todd explained, in this brook and would have just slowly made its way down. Because at that time, there wasn't a lot of water running. It was basically a creek, a small little dry bed. But it, it really wasn't until the winter rains that that creek would have been washed through. Where there, and that's where it gets the name, the torrent. So during the winter, it would have washed all that stuff down. But during the time of the Passover, there's a lot of blood that was collecting there. And also during that time, there would have been thousands of, of, of Jews and pilgrims flocking to the holy city, and they'd have to find a place to stay. So that valley would have been filled with tents and people that were just trying to stay someplace and sleep while they were there. And then on the side of that Mount of Olivet, there were many private gardens, and, we, you know, and, and where the well-to-do from Jerusalem, the people that, that, uh, that had money, would want to escape the city, or they'd want to escape the heat or the business of the city, so they would go to their private gardens. And Jesus had access to one such garden, and that was the Garden of Gethsemane. It's also referred to as the oil press. So we'll show a quick picture of the garden. And this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's perceived to be the one that actually is the garden. But you have to remember, on the side of that hill, on the Mount of Olivets, would have been a number of different gardens. And those gardens would have had a fence around them. They would have had a, a, a gate for the, you would go enter in and out, just making it more private for, for the individuals. 
But you can see that basically that's kind of the olive tree that would be there. So you can see it's kind of dense. There's olive trees and there's plants and stuff all um, sitting around in that, inside that garden. So I wanted to give you just an idea of what that garden would look like. So this particular destination, as Jesus had gone many, many times, was, cust- was a customary retreat for them. The garden was a place where Jesus and his disciples came each night when they were in Jerusalem. And Luke tells us in 2137, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in, on the Mount of Olivet. So again, this is home for him. This is where he went to rest. This is where he went to be with the Father. And we see a number of times where Jesus is there praying to the Father. He knew that Judas would come there looking for him, and he was ready for that. Jesus knew, uh, Jesus was there to lay his life down for the will of the Father, and he wanted Judas to find him there. He could have gone anywhere in the city, but he served a purpose for being in that garden at that time. And we're going to see as we, as we move through the, story, through the story why that's the case. See, this is all part of his plan, not Judas's plan, not the religious leader's plan. It's part of the Lord's plan. So Jesus fully knew what laid before him, and he, wanted to, he went to the garden to be in obedience to the Father. So let's move on to, uh, um, to verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So we see in this story that Judas took a detachment of soldiers. He also took temple police um, and, uh, and the chief priest went with him also. Now, these were provided by the chief priest. Now, the chief priest had called to have the Roman soldiers there with him. So this detachment of soldiers is, called, is what they call a cohort. And so that is a, a tenth part of a legion. Now, a legion of a Roman army is about six to 10,000 soldiers. So you can imagine this particular group that's assigned to Jerusalem is about 1,000 soldiers. And part of that would be about... 700 infantry, a couple hundred cavalry, and a bunch of other support individuals. So we can assume by the scriptures that that whole group was actually assigned and sent out. <clears throat> so with the Judas, along with him is this contingent of officers or temple guards. You have the chief priests, the Pharisees. You can start getting this picture of what's going on here. And they were all there to confront Jesus. They were all united together for their, in their hostility towards him that particular night. And they were most likely, as I said, commanded to pick up, you know, to go pick up this insurgentist who claimed to be some type of king. You can you remember it in some of the other stories that, that there were zealots were attacking Roman soldiers. So they were there. They were, they were ready for battle. <clears throat> this is an army that came alongside of them. So they're equipped with lanterns. They're equipped with torches. You'd say, why would they have to have all these lanterns and torches. What are, what are they doing there? Well, first of all, the Passover took place during a full moon. So there would have been enough light for them as they walked out of the, the, the temple, as they walked down the Kidron, as they walked into the garden, they would have been able to see what was going on. But the thought was, in this case, is that Jesus would be hiding. Jesus would have been hiding in, the, in some place in that garden. They wouldn't have been able to find him, but also that the Roman army would be ambushed. So you remember that the, the, the deceitful rulers are now claiming things that are not true. And so they probably riled up the, the commander of the Roman army um, to let them know that there's danger for them. So you can imagine this picture. Jesus, or Judas standing out in front of these men, leading them. Judas, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the temple guards, and a thousand Roman soldiers. 
all marching their way out of the city um, down towards the, the, the Kidron Valley. So you see this long line of torches and soldiers making their way from the gate down the ravine, as I explained, back up towards the Mount of Olives, and finally they met Jesus at the gate um, of the garden. But I want to show you, has anyone seen the 13th Warrior movie, 13 Warrior? Probably not. Hey, a few have. Well, there's a scene in there. So, so here's this individual that is, that is excommunicated from his, from his country. And then he, he winds up, for some reason, I still can't understand the story why he did, but he winds up helping defend this, this Nord, Nordsman village. And he's, he's along with 12 other warriors, right? And part of this, there's one scene in there where they're, they've now protect, protected the area. They've put up um, uh, barriers and things like that to keep them from this, this group of people that were trying to attack them from coming in and, 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 and attacking them. But one scene that was interesting in that, and that's what reminded me as I read through the scripture, is that all of a sudden this warning goes off and you see up in the far distance of the hill, you see these lights, these like torches start coming out and then eventually it gets bigger and it gets bigger. And this, this line of fire basically winds up winding itself all the way down the mountainside till they finally come on top of this, uh, this village. And so you can only imagine that's something very similar. So let me show you the pictures and tell you why I say that. Here's from the Garden of Gethsemane. This is sitting inside the garden. I, I took this picture because it was very interesting to see the gate that's up there. Now today, there's a cemetery in front of it. You can see that it's actually boarded up. But in Jesus' time, that would have been wide open. And that would have been the gate that they actually would have come out of. So could you imagine this? the soldiers are carrying torches and lanterns and they're walking down out of this gate and they're making their way up along the side of the wall through the ravine back up into the Garden of Gethsemane. That would have been something very similar as a scene. Let's go to the next picture. As you can see, like here's the valley to give you an idea roughly what's there. Again, there's a cemetery there today, but to give you an idea that, you know, there's some distance that they had to actually walk. But as I, next slide, you'll see that when I was there, I was told that this is actually the, the pathway. This is the road that Jesus would have gone up and down um, as he made his way to the city and back. And so you can see that, and I remember going down as we, driving, as we were driving down at that, it, it was pretty far. It was, a, it was a long way down there. So it would have taken them some time. It would have been a hike for them, but it would have been noisy. It would have been visible. So all those people that would have been in that valley probably would have seen what was going on. But again, they did it at night. They did it at about four o'clock in the morning. So that just gives you kind of an image as, as we talk through what's going on there. So let's move to verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? At this point, Jesus steps out of the garden. The Roman soldiers are probably expecting to be ambushed, but all of a sudden Jesus just steps out and greets them. At that point, Jesus completely disarms the mob coming out to meet him. He, he's not caught off guard, nor is he surprised at what happens, right? He, he, he knows all, and that's the point that we want to make, is that he's in control of all. So you can imagine that this Roman army now is caught off guard um, because Jesus has come out. The man that they're looking for has come out and greeted them. And we see that in the garden as Jesus went there to submit himself He was a willing and voluntary sacrifice. And we learn that in John chapter 10, verse 14 through through 18, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. This is, a, this is a man that knows what he's doing. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do when he submitted to the will of the Father in the garden. He knew that he was going to lay his life down for us. So we move to verse 5 again. So they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. This, this word and the way that Jesus had, 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 had said, I am he, startled them. They fell back on the ground, and they were no doubt struck by the majesty of his words. Now, that word, I am, is a word of power. It's a word of control. It's a word of authority. And Jesus was in control of the entire situation at that point. So when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine with torches flying, armor clanking, the swords falling to the ground, these soldiers go down under the sheer power of Jesus' proclamation of who he is. The whole Roman army at this point is on the ground. They fell down because of the power of his name. And is that being in control of what or not? That is amazing to see just by his voice that he can control that many men. So again, he asked them, whom do you seek? With his captor sprawled on the ground, Jesus could have simply walked away at that point. Instead, he waited for them to come too. He waited for them to collect themselves. And he repeated the question. And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. I bet at this time, the mob answered in a whole more cautiously way. I, you know, that definitely that they braced themselves. They're not, they're the Roman army. There is no way that they're going to allow Jesus to do that to them again. And they were totally taken off guard by his power. The interesting thing too is I bet at that point they were definitely poised for battle. So again, we see Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to, fill, to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So Jesus basically is telling them, if you want me, here I am. But let my disciples go. As a good shepherd, he did this not to lose any of his sheep, but to fulfill his father's will for the apostles and to fulfill his own prophetic word. And we see in John 17, 12, where Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That the scripture may be, may, might be fulfilled. His protection of the, of the uh, apostles at that time is a perfect illustration of his substitutionary atonement. Sorry, He would die not only for them, but he would die instead of them. At this point in the story, the, 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 the apostles scattered, all except for Peter and John. So then we learn in, in verse 10, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup of my, that my father has given me? So earlier we learned Peter stated his readiness to go to battle for the Lord and to give his life in a fight. So in 1337, we, we, Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. 
Peter meant well, and he definitely meant what he said. He was ready to wield a sword of metal in order to help Jesus take the throne by force. One man against the Roman army. Peter. Unbelievable Peter. But that's Peter. He's brash. He's impulsive. He's passionate. He's brave. But he's also very earthly minded. Peter's blind loyalty was touching, but it missed God's plan. Zeal without knowledge and religion often leads men astray. And we read that in Romans 10 too. For I bear them witness that they may have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So all of the disciples had courageously affirmed their devotion to Christ. And Peter decided to prove it that night. He certainly misunderstood what Jesus had about, or, or said about the swords earlier that night as we can, we've read in, in Luke um, chapter 22. He had warned them from now on that the situation would change, that men would treat them as transgressors. He was not suggesting that they use material swords to fight spiritual battles, but that they get a new mindset um, and to, accept, to expect opposition and even danger. He had provided for them and protected them while he was with them on earth, but now he was returning to the Father. And then they would have to depend on the Holy Spirit and exercise wisdom. So Peter apparently took his words literally and thought that he was supposed to declare war. So Peter's sword symbolizes rebellion against God's will. Peter should have known that Jesus had a, uh, would be arrested and that he would uh, willingly surrender uh, <clears throat> to his enemies. So Peter made every mistake that night possible. He fought the wrong enemy. He used the wrong weapon. He had the wrong motive. And he accomplished the wrong result. He was openly resisting the will of God and hindering the work that Jesus came to accomplish. While we admire, you can kind of really admire his courage and sincerity, um, it certainly was a demonstration of zeal without knowledge. So we ask, why did Peter fail so miserably in this? For one thing, he had argued with the Lord uh, when Jesus warned him that he would deny himself or would deny his master that very night. Peter had slept when he should have been praying and he talked when he should have been listening. Peter would have discovered that the sword of the Spirit is the weapon of God's servants that they use in fighting spiritual battles. He would one day use that sword at Pentecost to, to slay 3,000 souls. So Jesus didn't, did not need Peter's protection. He could have summoned legions of angels if it, had he wanted to be delivered. But Luke tells us that um, Jesus healed Malachus's ear in 2251. And this was certainly an act of grace on Jesus' part. But he says, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. Had Jesus not done so, there would have been four crosses up on that hill that day. Keep in mind that this, reveal, this, this uh, miracle that, that Jesus performs and his, his healing is, gr is really grace towards us. If Jesus had the power to stun an armed mob and to heal a severed ear, he, he could have saved himself from arrest, trial, and death. But he willingly submitted to the Father, and he did that for us. So Jesus did rebuke Peter for behaving like a non-believer and for failing to see God's plan unfolding. <clears throat> So we move into a different part of the story now, and we move into verses 12 through 27. And what I, the image that I want to give you is that it's almost like a play. There's a couple things going on in different stages. So we're going to see a, a portion of the trial, then we're going to move on to Peter's denial, then to the scriptures, we're going to go back to the trial again, and then we're going to move back to Peter's final denial. And so we see that in stage one, you'll see Jesus face 
Anas and Caiaphas, um, verses 12 through 14. Then while that action's going on, we're going to see another part where Jesus or Peter denies Jesus in 15 through 18. And then we're going to shift back again to that original stage um, where the high priest is questioning Jesus, and that's in verses 19 and 24. Then we finally return back to the stage again where Peter denies Jesus for the final time in verses 25 through 27. So let's go to 12 and we'll start there. So the band of soldiers and their captain and their officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man die for the people. So to arrest Jesus, soldiers, the Roman soldiers, you know, definitely followed Roman protocol. They would have pulled Jesus' arms behind his back. They would have placed uh, irons on him, or they would have tightly um, uh, tied rope to, to bind his hands. And because of the way that he was arrested, there would have been a noose around his neck, and that noose would have stayed on him the entire time of that trial where they would have led him around. So you can start to see the deceit of these religious rulers, especially with Anas, because he's no longer the high priest. He's a high priest, but he's not the high priest. But it's interesting to find out why is he involved. Well, prior, he had turned his position over to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, um, in in favor for the temple concessions. Now, these temple concessions um, definitely were the selling of sacrifices, were the money changers, were things that went on in the temple. And through those concessions, he became a very, very wealthy man. So here you see Jesus standing before the one whose livelihood that he dared to threaten and overturn when, he threw the, when he'd overturned the tables, uh, the money changers, and when he drove the oxen of those sacrifices out of his father's house. So you start to see the deceit that's going on in this particular trial. So although uh, Caiaphas didn't realize that he had spoke profound truth, for one man must indeed die for the salvation of mankind. So now we're going to move into another scene where we see Peter denies Jesus. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So Matthew 26, 58 tells us that Peter followed from afar. And isn't that just like us? We, we, we follow Jesus not too close, but not too far. That allows us to stay in the world, allows us to stay in our, and, and, and things that please us and our pleasures. But we depend so much on Jesus that we want to make sure that he's close enough that when we need him, we can reach out to him. It's exactly what Peter was doing. The other disciple spoken here um, is John. Um, many, there's a lot of commentaries that say that it's not John, it's somebody else. But everything that I studied, everything that I could find, I, 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 I'm convinced that it is John. So we're going to move on to 16. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also with them standing and warming himself. So you got to say, oh, Peter, you've already been following Jesus from a far distance. Now you're warming your hands with the, with, the, with the fire of the enemies. 
This is actually, for me, and I know for many of you, it's probably a great question. How often do we warm our hands with the enemies? How often are we so willing to fall into the world because we're afraid of what's happening in the world and that we're not submitting, we're not following him, Jesus close enough? So let's move on to the next scene now. So remember, this is happening at the same time. You have the denial going on. You have the trial going on. Now we're going to pop back over again to Jesus being questioned by the high priest. So the high priest then questioned Jesus about his, his disciples and teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews came together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I have said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But, what, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, uh, the high priest. So at this time, Jewish tradition carefully regulated the criminal trials and even more so civil cases. No trial was to be held in secret or at night. The only proper place to hear a criminal trial was the hall of judgment in the temple. So when evidence was being heard, the accused could not be compelled to testify in his own case. All charges had to be substantiated by multiple witnesses. So we see in verse 19, Jesus calling for witnesses to testify. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows that this is not supposed to be happening. But he wants to call, he wants to challenge them, and he wants to ask them where are their witnesses. So, because everything that he had said, he did in the presence of multitudes. So even brutality was not allowed in the courtroom, yet one of the guards had stepped in front of Jesus and punched him. He, can you imagine being that one that actually struck him? I, I wouldn't want to be him. So even through the illegalities of the trial, Jesus maintains perfect composure. He is totally in control of this situation. Why? Again, because he accepted the will of the Father, he knew exactly what was in place for him. He knew exact, exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew that the outcome would be that he would be crucified. So now we're going to move from that trial. We're going to move now back to the final denial of, of, uh, of Peter. So we're moving to a, a scene again. So now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose, pe whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Jesus had or predicted that Peter would deny him three times, but Jesus also said that he would restore Peter to fellowship and to service, and we see that in Luke as well. So Peter followed the crowd when he should have been fleeing. He had, he had gone his way. If he had gone his way um, when Jesus excused them or asked them to, to not take them, he would never have been, he would have never have denied the Lord. You can kind of admire his love and his courage for Jesus, but you can't agree with his actions for at that time he walked directly into temptation. Remember, Jesus warned him, do not fall into temptation. This is what Jesus warned him about in the garden, right? So as you watch Peter, you see him gradually move into this place of temptation and sin through these events. So first, we see Peter walked in the council of the ungodly when he followed Jesus and went into the high priest's courtyard. 
Peter should have never followed him. Uh, the counsel, and he should have followed the counsel of Jesus and left um, in a hurry. Then Peter stood with the enemy by the fire. Matter of fact, before long, he actually sat with the enemy. So you can see where his mindset was. Now it was way too late at that point. Uh, within a short time, he would deny the Lord three times. First, at the servant girl would ask him um, if he was one of, the, of this man's disciples, and Peter denied Christ by denying that he belonged to the band, the band of disciples. <coughs> Peter remained by the fire, so it's no wonder that he was approached again. You would think Peter would have known if he was challenged by someone, he would have moved. But no, Peter sat. Matter of fact, he sat down with them, and he comforted himself even more at the fire. Third question came from one of Malachus's relatives. He said, I saw you in the garden with Jesus, didn't I? And then after, after all, this man had gotten a good look at Peter because he's probably um, with them, standing with them when Jesus was arrested. It was at this point that the rooster began to crow, this third denial, and just had Jesus predicted. The crowing of the rooster reminded Peter of the Lord's words, and so he went out and wept bitterly. The, the crowing of the rooster was an assurance to Peter that Jesus was totally in control of the situation, even though he was bound and he was being harassed by the authorities. But the, roast, but the rooster crowing was also an invitation to repentance for Peter. Luke tells us that Jesus turned and looked at Peter, and that look was a look of love for Peter, and it, was, and it broke Peter's heart at that point. You know, Peter had been a witness of Christ's sufferings, and he tells us that in 1 Peter 5.1, but by his denials, he added to those sufferings, right? So we keep in mind that the crowing of the rooster is an announcement of a dawning of the new day. So that's a new day of redemption for him. It's a new day of redemption for us as well. So we'll discover in chapter 21 later that Jesus restored Peter. He enabled him to serve with great power and also with blessings. So that night in the garden, you would have found both guilt and grace. Peter is guilty of resisting God's will. Judas was guilty of the basest kind of treachery. The mob was guilty of rejecting the Son of God and treating him as though he was the lowest kind of criminal. But Jesus through this was gracious. He crossed the Kidron fully conscious of, Judas, of what Judas and that Judas was betraying him. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane and surrendered to the Father's will. He healed Malachus's ear and he protected his disciples. He yielded himself into the hands of sinners that he might suffer and die for us. But that's not the end. And we know through Scripture that all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And we read that in Romans 8.28. So there are many things that Peter teaches us here in this scripture. We learn that the believer is weak, that there's a danger in self-confidence. We learn the consequences of prayerlessness. Peter should have been praying instead of sleeping, that he would have been ready for the danger that was awaiting him. He would have been ready and prepared for the temptation. He would have been had the ability to, to not sin. And through this, we especially see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. We see his grace. We see his mercy in this. This is really not the end for Peter. In spite of Peter's sin and denial, Jesus redeems him and makes him the rock of his church. So God can store, restore Peter. He can certainly restore each and every one of us if we're willing to submit to the Father. So as I start to close this, this story, I want to kind of talk a little bit about the application of that. 
So these events in the garden, again, had to happen because it was the will of the Father. Through that, Jesus demonstrated um, to us that he was in complete control. Not Satan, not Judas, not the deceitful rulers, and not a thousand Roman soldiers. Jesus laid his life down. He bore the sins of the world for us. He hung on that cross for us. That is how much Jesus loves each and every one of us. So through his glory, he protects us. He, st- he stands in our place. It's because we can depend on him and trust him. And, and that was something that I had to learn many, many years ago. I mean, for, for me, um, I remember I was one that was warming my hands by the fire. I mean, I had money in my pocket, money in the bank, great job. Life was good, not a worry at all in the world. I was going to seminary, discipling men, but man, I would very easily fall back in to warming my hands there. And it wasn't until he took that from me, until I really, really knew what it was to trust him, to depend on him for everything. I was very, very capable of easily walking back and warming my hands there. So he does, um, we can trust him. We, tr- we must not be blind like I was blind to, wow, to the work he's doing in our lives. Now, we must be open to that. We must be in his word. We must be in prayer. And we must wait on him. And we wait on him so we can stand with him. We don't have to stand on our own. We can stand with him. So really, we're not any different than Peter. We easily align ourselves to the world just as Peter did while he warmed his hands. We claim to be bold for Christ. We claim that we would die daily for him. But when adversity comes, and we collapse at the pressure. We allow fear of man to, to, to control us. Just like Peter, we forget that we must be in the word and in prayer every day. We must depend on the Holy Spirit to keep us from temptation and sin. Otherwise, we would fall into it so easily. Just like Peter, we depend on something that we can see, something that we can hold, something we can wield, something that we are in control of. But again, we are in control of nothing. Jesus is in control of all. So that's why we're just like Peter. Jesus was in complete control of the situation. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knows everything that is going to happen. So remember, he always has been in control, he is in control, and he will always be in control. So as I get ready to close, I'm going to have the band come up. But I want you to remember that Jesus, um, again, is always in control. Through his enduring justice, through that time in the garden, through the trial, he remained calm and extended grace to his enemies. That's something that we need to learn to do as well. Even though Peter denied him, Jesus still loved him and used him in a mighty way. Jesus can still use every one of us in a mighty way. We just have to surrender to him completely. So Jesus was obedient unto death, right? He took the sins upon himself so that we may have eternal life. That night, he accepted the will of the Father. He was beaten, crucified, and died, and he hung on that cross for us. So I have to ask this question, what's keeping you from submitting to him? What's keeping you from following him completely? Is it pride? Is it arrogance? If it's any one of those things, we would love an opportunity to pray for you. We're going to have some people out in the, over here that will pray for you. Um, even if you just want some pr- prayer to be bold in the Lord, we would love to do that. If you've never been baptized, today's the day to be obedient in that. Come up and get baptized. So let's go ahead and uh, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for who you are, Lord. Thank you just for your grace and your mercy, but specifically, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for us, Lord. Thank you for bearing the sins Father, we would not be able to handle it, but you handle it for us, God. So 
We know that you're in control. Help us to always remind and remind us of that, Lord. God, as we, as we have a tendency to warm our hands by the fires of the world, Lord, please draw us closer to you, Lord. Help us to stay out of temptation, Lord. Help us to stay out of sin. Lord, help us to not be just like Peter was where we are walking too far away from you. Draw us close to you, Lord. Help us to recognize who you are. Keep us, Lord, in prayer daily with you, Lord God, and help us to be so dependent on your Holy Spirit, Lord. We love you. We are so thankful for all that you do in our lives, Lord. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.